take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 9. Just want to spend a few minutes together this morning in the scripture as we prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord and participate in a feast upon the riches of Christ's grace and goodness to us as it's signified in the simple elements of the table, the bread, and the cup. 2 Samuel chapter 9. This is, um, it's an interesting text for a lot of reasons. Um, it's interesting for me because there's a very difficult name in the middle of the text. Uh, but there's, a, there's some neat things, I think, that come out of this particular passage, which I hope the Lord will enable us to see, to apply to our lives today. 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and would you follow with me as we go all the way through to verse 13. Then David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he's in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, here is your servant. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again he prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? Then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now, Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly, and he was lame, or now he was lame, in both feet. They were married in September of 1950 in Rossville, Georgia, just a little mill town across the border from Chattanooga. A small, obscure church, and they walked down the aisle that day. He was 21. She was 20, but a month later in October, she would turn 21. It was a simple ceremony, but they made vows that day. They made commitments. They engaged in a covenant obligation that day in a simple ceremony. It's a commitment that bound them together for life. There were no professional photographers on hand that day, just some black and white snapshots that captured the moment, but could not conceal their love or joy, nor could the black and white snapshots conceal the promise of two lives becoming one. 
Each year they would mark the date in which they exchanged those vows by exchanging very simple gifts. Simple gifts, but they said again, I love you and I'm going to keep the commitment that I've made to you. And they would preserve those annual markers, those annual moments when they would celebrate the day that they entered into a covenantal arrangement with fresh pictures. First a roll of black and white, and then the Polaroid came out, and they were able to capture the pictures and see them instantly in color. And eventually, as the years passed, they were able to actually record them on a movie camera, a camcorder, so that they could go back and look at at the moment again in the future. They marked the 50th occasion of their uh, commitment to one another by walking down another aisle in another place in another city in another church for a final time. And they would say again the words that they had said some 50 years before that, the covenant commitment that had bound their lives together in the tightly woven strands of God's grace and providence. This time the figures are a little bit fuller. The truth is he can no longer squeeze into the suit he wore on his wedding day. And the truth is she can no longer squeeze into the wedding dress she wore that day either. The steps, though sure, are a little bit slower as they come down the aisle. His hairline has receded and gray lines the temples, adding a touch of maturity, character, and dignity to her appearance. But they would say again on that day, the day of their 50th anniversary, the same words that they had spoken some 50 years prior. This time, however, they mean a little bit more. They're filled with a greater weight, a greater solemnity. Because by now there was a child and a miscarriage. Financial crises, health crises, the death of parents and siblings, serious surgeries, and varied adversities over the years. So that now when they said, I take you, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, it meant a little bit more now that a half a century had passed. Their lives held together by this Simple and yet weighty and profound covenant commitment until death separated them, separated them about four years ago. I'm familiar with this story because it's the story of my mom and dad. And because they stood before me on their 50th wedding anniversary and said again those words, I love you and I take you for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, I take you. We understand the power of a covenant in the very act of marriage. We understand that when a man and a woman stand before God and before the witnesses of their family and friends, they enter into an engagement that has binding obligations and binding promises. Marriage is the leading picture that God gives to us in the Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. He says through the mouth of Jeremiah to his Old Testament people, I am married to you. I am married to you by a covenant. The whole book of Hosea is built around this picture of God's covenant obligation to his people, which he says to them, I love you and I cannot put you away forever. When Paul plants the church at Corinth and in his second letter, he talks about his affection and his relationship with them and what it means to come to Christ. He says of them, I have espoused you to Christ as to a chaste virgin. It's the leading picture of God's relationship with his people in both testaments. And we see the power of a covenant commitment in David's determination to show kindness 
to Jonathan's family, to those who are descendants of Jonathan because of a simple covenant commitment that he had made to Jonathan in 1 Samuel 18 and that he had repeated again in 1 Samuel chapter 20. And so 20 years have now passed and David is seated upon the throne in regal splendor and his kingdom is at peace and he has subdued all of his enemies or I should say the Lord has subdued all of his enemies. And so David now poses the question, is there anyone left to whom I may show the kindness of God? And the narrative is advanced and moves on the basis of this threefold repetition of this key word kindness. David asks in verse 1, is there anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He asks Saul's former servant in verse 3, is there not anyone yet left of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And finally, in verse 7, with the descendant of Jonathan, his son Mephibosheth, standing lame and crippled in both feet, exiled and estranged, standing before him. David says, I will surely show kindness to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Kindness translates a pretty significant Hebrew word. It's the word hesed. It literally means steadfast love or devoted loyalty. It's a covenantal term. It's the term that causes the covenant. It's the effect of the commitments that are taken in the context of a covenant. David's covenant with Jonathan compelled him, willed him, caused him to show kindness to his son Mephibosheth, who lame, who was lame and exiled and living across the Jordan River in a place called Lodabar, which literally means no pasture, instead of living in Jerusalem, the place in the city of peace. It was David covenant commitment that sought Mephibosheth out, that led him to inquire and to intend to show kindness for Jonathan's sake. It was covenant loyalty to Jonathan that led David to decisively intervene in Mephibosheth's life. When Mephibosheth was standing before David, perhaps he anticipated that David was going to kill him because it wouldn't have been uncommon for the descendants of a deposed monarchy to be exterminated by the king seated upon the throne. But not so, David says to him in verse 7, I speak words of peace to you, Mephibosheth, I give you peace. Do not be afraid. I'm not going to harm you. In fact, I'm going to show you kindness. David restored his privileges. He says to him, I will restore all the land of your grandfather Saul. And even more than that, even more than all the land and the cattle and the livestock and the herds and the flocks and the orchards and the fields, even more than that, I'm going to bring you in and allow you to eat at my table as though you were one of my sons. And the passage we've read this morning four times says that as if to emphasize it and to underscore it that Mephibosheth came from being exiled in a place of no pasture to coming into the palace. And sitting at the table with the king and being treated as though he were one of David's own sons. In fact, David's uh, kindness was such that Mephibosheth's deformed limbs were covered under the linens of the king's table. His name, Mephibosheth, means shameful or one who causes shame. But the shame was covered. The shame was hidden in the presence of the king. And he was received as though he were his very own son. Now, the narrative of the text is a real story. It really happened. It really is a King David. 
It took place in a space-time moment. However, it's more than just an illustration of how you and I are to be kind and to love our enemies. It's more than a moralism that illustrates what Jesus would teach to us in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a poignant foreshadowing. It anticipates God's kindness to you and his kindness to me in the gospel of grace. It shows the kindness of a greater king through a greater son to whom he had made a covenant commitment himself. It anticipates the gospel of God's covenant of grace. David shows kindness to Saul's family because he had made a commitment to Jonathan. But I tell you, the Bible substantiates this truth that God shows kindness to you and me because of his covenant commitment to Christ. He has said to Christ, I will give you a people, a people so vast that no one will be able to count them and I will save them. And I give you that commitment. And so Christ comes and he says of himself, Jesus says of himself in John chapter four, it is my food, my meat, my bread to do the will of him who sent me because of this covenant commitment that the father has made to the son. Covenant is the way that God determines to save a fallen and ruined race. It's the means by which he is determined to carry out all that he's committed himself to do. He's committed himself to restore lost, fallen, and flawed sinners to a relationship that includes being found, redeemed, and forgiven, and accepted as though we were his own sons and daughters. And he does that on the basis of his covenant commitment and loyalty and obligation. The English versions translate this word hesed as loving kindness whenever it's applied to God. For example, when the Lord declares himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, one of the things that God says of himself, of his nature and character before Moses is in some in Exodus 34, rather, is that he is the Lord, the Lord God. He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And he keeps loving kindness. That is, he keeps his steadfast love. He keeps his covenant loyalty to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The psalmist in Psalm 136, 26 times, a repeated refrain over and over and over, celebrates the loving kindness of God, which endures forever. And if you were to read through those 26 verses, and you were to read just through the top lines and forget the second line, the refrain that says, the Lord's loving kindness endures forever. If you just read the top line, you would discover that all that God does as creator, provider, protector, savior, redeemer is because of his loving kindness because of his hesed, his covenant, steadfast, devoted loyalty to all that he's promised. You see, because God is faithful to his covenant commitment, he's given us peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has said to you, and he has said to me, fear not, for I will show you kindness for the sake of Christ. He tells us in the gospel not to fear. He's given us peace through the reconciling work accomplished by Christ on the cross. He satisfied his own righteous requirements through the person and work of the Lord Jesus so that he can give us favor, so that he can give us peace, so that he can be infinitely kind and generous and benevolent. The night of his betrayal, our Lord Jesus says to his disciples, my peace, my peace in John 14. 
I give to you. You and I have the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have peace with God. Because of God's covenant commitment. His devoted steadfast love. Psalm 85 describes a situation in which loving kindness and righteousness would meet. It describes a situation in which righteousness and peace have kissed. And I'm telling you today on the basis of Scripture that that is true because of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God in covenant obligation sent to save us from our sins. Because God is faithful to his covenant commitment, he's restored all that we've lost in Adam, in Adam's sin and our own rebellion. He gives to us a son in whom we have righteousness, sanctification, redemption, and wisdom. He gives us life, eternal, everlasting life, life more abundant, life in all of its satisfying fullness. He takes our filthy rags of our own weaving, of our own sin and our own doing, and he covers those rags with the perfect merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us his Holy Spirit in fulfillment of a covenant promise in Ezekiel 36, to which Dr. Young referred to last Sunday in his morning sermon. I will take out your heart of stone, God promises, and I will give you a fleshly heart, a heart that is warm and responsive to me. And I will put my spirit within you and enable you, incline you, empower you to walk in my ways, to love my ways and to love me. And he does that because he is covenantally faithful to his promise to us in Christ. He will change our death-doomed bodies in the resurrection so that they're like Christ, the patterned son, because he's promised and because he keeps his promises, because he's covenantally obligated to do so. He will make us stand blameless in his presence someday. Jude closes this short epistle with, I think, the greatest doxology in the New Testament. Now unto him who is able to make you stand blameless in his presence. He will make you stand there someday blameless in his presence to see, to savor, and to share in the glory that is Christ alone. And though it's almost too hard to imagine or comprehend, if Jesus had not said it in John chapter 17 and verse 23... When he's praying the great high priestly prayer as he's left the garden and has been betrayed and is waiting for the consummation of his betrayal and crucifixion. Jesus prays in John 17, Father, you love them like you love me. It's hard to imagine that you today are loved as though you were Jesus because of God's covenant promise and because he's faithful to keep his promises Because God is faithful, he brings you into his family and treats you as though you were his sons and daughters eating at his table. Jesus in Luke 12 says to a beleaguered, meager lot of ragamuffin disciples, fear not, it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He covers our deformities by the linens from his table. And he loves us as though we were Christ himself. Paul, writing about this in Romans 8, says we didn't receive a spirit that makes us a slave again to fear, but we've received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And God's spirit testifies with us that we are God's children. And because we're children, we are heirs and joint heirs of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of that, brethren, the totality of God's sustained saving intention through Christ is carried forward because 
He's promised because he made a covenant commitment and a covenant obligation. We're in Genesis in Sunday morning in chapter 32. And if we were to turn left and go over to Genesis chapter 15, there God made very specific promises to Abraham. And generally when a covenant arrangement was made, they would take animals and they would cut them in half. They would cut them asunder and they would put the pieces uh, one half of the pieces here and one half of the pieces there. And if you could imagine Brian, Sal, and I entering into a covenant obligation, we took the cow and we cut it in half and we laid one half here, one half there. We took the ram and cut it in one half here, one half there. And we made these covenant promises to one another. Brian, I'm going to do this and do this and do this. And if something happens to you, I'm going to rear your sons and your daughters, though they were mine. And you would say to me, if something happens to you, Jeff, I'm going to rear your son and your daughter as though they were mine. And we would walk between these animals and we would pledge to one another. May God do more than this to us, more than separate and saw us asunder if we don't keep our covenant promise. And we'd call God to witness. Well, let me tell you, when God entered into a covenant arrangement with Abraham, he put Abraham into a deep sleep. Something I'm also capable of doing, may I add. But he put Abraham into a deep sleep. And, and instead of when the, the heifer was laid apart and the ram was laid apart and the goat was laid apart and they took a turtle dove and a pigeon, they didn't cut them in half. They simply Abraham wrung the, the, the head off the neck off and laid that apart. And it wasn't as if God and Abraham walked between the animals. Only one person passed between the animals that day. And it wasn't Abraham. It was God. Because God was saying, Abraham, I know you and you will not fulfill your covenant commitment, but I will. I'll keep my end of the bargain. I will fulfill my obligations. And in the covenant of grace, that's exactly what God has done to us. There's only one who's passed between those covenant commitments. And that's God's promise to Christ to save a people. And you and I are the recipients, not of our own covenant merit, not of our own covenant faithfulness, but because of the covenant faithfulness and obligation of God. The summary of God's covenant commitment is found in these words. I will be your God and you will be my people. That is all that God is. Infinite, eternal and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness and truth. All that God is, he promises to be for you. All that is meant by the name God, creator, sustainer, redeemer, judge, sovereign and almighty. He promises to be to us. And all that is meant by the promise, I will not leave you, and I will not forsake you. He is to us because of his covenant commitment. Jim Whitaker was the first American climber to scale the ethereal summit of Everest. And he writes about his adventures of mountain climbing in his book, A Life on the Edge. And he describes, and because I have this a hard issue with heights, he describes for me in heart-pounding, sweaty palm detail what it is to be suspended off the sheer face of a cliff, suspended by a piton driven in the rock by someone else. You would only hope that the person driving that piton in the rock that day, A, was having a good day, and B, was as concerned for your safety as you were concerned for your own safety. He describes descending down the sheer face of what's called the tooth, a, a jawbone that juts out of the western face of the Cascade Mountains some 5,000 feet. 
he describes descending down this, being belayed as a man has a rope tied around his waist. You would hope that man had every intention of getting you down the sheer face of the cliff. Well, I tell you today that your safety and security and salvation now and forever is anchored in God's pitons of grace, driven in the character of his covenant faithfulness. You can bank your eternity on the covenant faithfulness and commitment of God. And you say, how do you know it's true? Because this table says to us today, through sensible signs, that it is true. That all of his promises are yes and amen to us in Christ. Because these are the signs of his grace. Because these are the signs of his covenant faithfulness and obligation. Because he's faithful to his word. Because Numbers 23 and Titus 1 and Hebrews 6 and Romans 3 and other places say it is impossible for God to lie. He's utterly, completely and totally ethically reliable. That is what he's promised. He will do because he means what he says and he does what he says. And here's the signs of it. Might we come to the table today rejoicing, not in our merit or our faithfulness, but in the merits of Christ and the faithfulness of God's covenant commitments to us. Fathers, we bow before you this morning. We pray that you would take these simple signs, a bread and a cup, and that you would set them apart and cause them to be a real means of grace in our lives today, that we would see in them and share in them and rejoice in them your covenant character and your covenant faithfulness to us. We thank you, Father, that you are a great and gracious God and that all of your promises to us are true because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.